0: You had the Dalai Lama kind of co-sign your book. How did you connect with him? How do you train for that awareness? You would just spent like a week or 10 days in, in darkness. What was your experience? How did you eat? Welcome everybody to a, a very special episode of Sauna Sessions. The man I'm about to introduce is a I mean, his resume is, is, is longer than anybody I know. He's a world traveler, adventurer. This guy, he fought in the Iraq War. He's overcome uh, addiction. He's uh, he even cut part of your finger off in Antarctica. He's an incredible human being, a very deep, deep uh, brother, a deep friend, deep human being. Yeah, welcome. Welcome, Akshay, or Firvana. Welcome to Sauna Sessions. Thank you so much, brother. Thank you for having me. Truly an honor. It's an honor to have you here. I can't wait to dive into everything you've you your past and also your future because I know you've got some adventures ahead. Uh, but there's there's one thing that I'm that I wanted to to actually kind of start with that I was I was scrolling through your Instagram. You know I'm a big health guy. You know I love fitness. I love well. I love exercise. And I saw this video of you doing Nordic curls. You did about twenty. What was it like twenty one?
1: Twenty one. Yeah.
0: And I was like, what the heck? I'm doing like five. You did like, and then I I literally looked up, okay, what's the world record? And I think the world record is like 26. Are you trying to beat the record? Is that like a goal?
1: (laughs) I am not. Actually, my trainer, who's a good friend of mine, he holds the world record for the most Nordic curls in a minute. So he's training me. I'm, my goal is purely training for Antarctica, but you know, I have that inherent competitive streak to beat myself ultimately. And so I didn't, I didn't expect to hit 21 that day. I went in, you know, I just went in ready to go to war with myself and I'm blessed with a good trainer. And I went from zero to 21 in six, less than six months. It was just uh, you know, commitment to the craft. And I've also started with a strong baseline. You know, I never done Nordics, but I do a lot of tire dragging. And obviously, as you know, I train pretty hard for my adventures. So, but uh, not aiming for the record. We'll see where it goes though.
0: (laughs) You might might get it. Well, you you mentioned the, you know, you train hard, you have a level of commitment that is uh, leagues above people that I know that I've come into contact with. So just, just introduce yourself. I gave you a little intro, but introduce yourself. Who are you? And also, where did the name Firvana come from? The background of Firvana
1: and ultimately everything I am today, it began when I joined the Marines. So even kind of stepping back a little bit before that, I was born in India, moved around a lot, moved to Austin, Texas at 13. Soon after moving here, got very heavily into drugs, alcohol, self-destructive. I have these cuts on my arm where I used to cut myself, burn myself. You know, just very self-destructive lifestyle. Lost two friends to addiction. And one day I saw the movie Black Hawk Down. You've seen, have you ever seen that movie? I've heard of it. I've never seen it. Should I put it on the list? A movie changed my life. It's a war movie based on a true story. And watching okay. that movie, specifically these men who sacrificed their lives for somebody else. I mean, put themselves mm-hmm. in the line of fire, in danger, died. And the, the guy they died protecting is still alive today because of what they did. You know, Michael Durant is still alive because of what Gary Gordon and Randy Sugar did. And that touched my soul, man, the kind of courage, the compassion to do that. And almost overnight, I stopped doing drugs. I read the book Black Hawk Down and decided to join the military. It was like, this is what I, this is, I was, I mean, I was living a worthless life, right? Selfish, meaningless, no value to it until this movie planted the seed that had me then say, I want to do something greater. I want to live in a world in the Marines, you know, separate from all the politics, you live for the good of the group. Your well-being is not as important as the men in the mission, you know, and so to live in that world where the group matters more than you, is profoundly beautiful. So I decided to go in and it took me about a year and a half because I have flat feet, I have scoliosis, I have a blood disorder that two doctors told me would kill me in boot camp, but this was post 9-11. So here's a young kid who wants to go infantry, they'll find a place for you, you know? (laughs) So I joined the Marines. That's where I first started to learn the beauty of suffering, the beauty of struggle, The beauty of going to war with yourself and finding that inherent power of the human spirit that we have to transcend that struggle and to do it in service of something bigger, right? We were serving for each other. So after that, I started to look for new ways to confront my own fears and play on the edges. Outdoor sports became my playground. Every outdoor sport you can think of, skydiving, scuba diving, mountain climbing, all of it. And then in 2007, I was deployed to Iraq as an infantry Marine where one of my jobs out there was to walk in front of our vehicles looking for bombs before they could be used to kill me and my fellow Marines. A dangerous job, but through all of this, I built my, my relationship that I currently have with fear, the ability to thrive in the face of it, right? Thrive in the face of adversity. But the greatest battle I ever faced was after coming back. I lost a brother to the war, lost some junior Marines to suicide, and I struggled a lot with diagnosed with PTSD, depression, drinking, drinking a bottle of vodka a day for days on end until one morning when I woke up and I was seconds away, standing in the kitchen about to slip my own wrists. And that moment was that rock bottom that began my journey out of the abyss, to climb out of that abyss, which ultimately then, thankfully, I got out of that world you know, out of that darkness, I found my way back into the light. And that led me to fear of Honor, to this idea that fear can be an access point to bliss and enlightenment. Yes, I went through stress. Yes, we all suffer. But our suffering is not the enemy. Stress is not the enemy. Anxiety is not the enemy. Fear is not the enemy. It can be the greatest vehicle tra- to, to transcendence and to bliss, you know. So fear of Honor, writing the book, helping others navigate their own suffering, and then finding peace through it in my own way, becoming an ultra runner, adventurer, and now training for this 110-day crossing of Antarctica is kind of a culmination of decades of adventuring on the edge.
0: Wow. You know, it's so interesting because I, um, I think we share in our, our, our spiritual beliefs and understandings and interests. And, you know, nirvana is a word that I've always been interested in. And many years ago, I looked up the Sanskrit definition of the word Nirvana and the word Nirvana actually means extinction or to blow out like a candle. So when you said the individual is no more there, as far as the, in in the midst of the group, it's about the group. That is right. That selfless self, that's Nirvana. And they say the enlightened sage is totally fearless, right? Fearlessness Mm -hmm. is, I mean, obviously it's something that occurs. It's natural, it's evolutionary, it's biological. But, you know, apparently then the enlightened masters who've attained this, this, this place of nirvana, the, they have transcended the fear. <laughs> it's fascinating. It's fascinating. Absolutely. Speaking of like spirituality, you had the Dalai Lama kind of, kind of co-sign your, your work, your book. How did you connect with him? And uh, also, I'd love to know a little deeper on your, your spiritual um, beliefs
1: part of that first question as far as the Dalai Lama, it was a pure cold pitch you know when I wrote Firvana I had no platform completely unknown no you know no no brand recognition at all and this was a very spiritual concept, right the idea of unifying fear with Nirvana and so who's the sort of spiritual leader to validate this to endorse this' it's the Dalai Lama. So okay, why not try First time that thought entered my head I said, there's no way. Who am I I'm an unknown it's not going to happen right And then I thought, Like, like we kind of go through that inner dialogue, right? But then I thought, okay, why not try? What's the worst that could happen? He says, no, and I'm still exactly where I am. So I reached out to His Holiness's office. I didn't get anywhere. I did a ton of research, found a name and an email address. So at least now it's a person, not just a random form. And I mm-hmm. found him, I shot a video sharing everything I've been through, what we're trying to do with Fear of Anna. even the book. I'm not making a dollar off. We donated all the proceeds to charity. And so I shared all of this. And this monk connected me to three other monks. Next thing you know, I've connected with him. He said, all right, I got your info. We'll review it. And over five, six months, I kept following up. And the whole time I said to myself, you know, what if they hate my book? What if they don't like me? Who am I? Why would they endorse my book? And I kept being with my thought, but not being defined by that thought. So I can have this thought, but it doesn't have to be who I am. So I'm gonna follow up. I'm gonna check in anyway. I'm gonna, you know, be healthily persistent. And ultimately after five months, this gentleman, this monk over there, wrote to me saying, considering everything you've been through and your genuine desire to serve, I'll press your case. And ultimately, I only asked for a one-liner, but the Dalai Lama wrote the forward for my book, which was such an honor and a blessing. And I now have this letter that we framed up in my house in India with his holiness's seal and signature. It was just a, a huge honor. It was a very, very yeah, a great blessing have that, you know, of course, just for me spiritually, as well as for the book, you know, and help it get in front of more people. And then to answer that second part of the question, as far as my spiritual journey, you know, or my spiritual understanding of reality, I don't ascribe to a particular religion. If I had to, I would say it's closest to Buddhism, like my version of God, and there's no right wrong, this is just my version. I don't ascribe to a deity to a higher power, I think God is the essence of the human spirit at its finest, you know, it's, it's that part of us that when we see something horrific happening, we feel bad, we feel compassion, we feel tears, right? It's, it's, it's our ability to transcend ourselves, transcend this mortal realm that we're all imprisoned in to do something impossible. Like I, I recently saw the movie Hacksaw Ridge. I don't know if you've seen that, where Desmond Doss, true story, he saved 75 people off a cliff in World War II, received the Medal of Honor. What he did was impossible, right? It was impossible to do that, and he did it. And after every person he saved, he would say, please, God, help me save one more. And what he did to me is an expression of God through us, through our form. And tapping into that is how – it's what drives me to Antarctica for 110 days alone is to, to in that silence, to find the divinity that we each have within us to transcend and keep moving forward in the face of our pain and suffering for something bigger than ourselves.
0: Mm-hmm. Incredible. In my uh, kind of reading and literature and the old Hindu scriptures, the Upanishads, yeah. It's interesting because it's so in alignment with the things that you also the messages you you teach and preach and convey, and the, that it can be really defined by one sentence, and that sentence is suffering is grace, suffering mm. is grace because it brings us so close to that that true our true selves right our, our our loving selves or at least it should right <laughs> sometimes we we reject it we avoid it we repress it. But true suffering, I believe, is, is a gift if we really see into it.
1: Absolutely, brother. You know, to your point, when you, when you are in that depths of the struggle, of the suffering, it sheds all these masks we wear to move through the mundane, to move through the normal world. Because in that, nothing else matters. You're just consumed in that. And then it brings through something more. It brings through the essence of the human spirit. You know, in like, for example, in war. War reveals the humanity at its extremes. You see the absolute worst of humanity, people doing horrific things to each other, but you also see the best. And suffering is that doorway to humanity at its extremes because the masks are gone. And without that, there's a kind of purity to that experience. And when you approach it with consciousness, with purpose, with intention, it becomes the doorway to our collective salvation, right? It is a necessary vehicle to attain that next stage of our own personal evolution as well as our collective one. And that's why now it's not just – a. I mean, life's going to throw it your way whether you like it or not. As I always like to say, if you don't seek out a worthy struggle, struggle will find you anyway. So you get to choose which suffering you want, the one life throws your way or the one you're going to seek in service of yourself. You know, And doing that now then trains you. Now it builds you. It gives you the, the weapons to be the eye of the storm
0: when the storm hits. What are some, some tools, some strategies that you've used that you can share when people are in, in the midst of tough, traumatic time in uh, suffering, or even have a, a deep fear about something that they really want to do, but yeah. they're, they're kind of consumed by the fear? The first step is to not demonize that emotion
1: as bad or good and not label it, right? We live in a world that says fear, stress, anxiety, sadness, guilt, anger. These are quote unquote bad emotions. And then the rejection of that emotion makes it worse. It amplifies it. And now it consumes us even more. So the first step, if I'm feeling afraid, if I'm feeling nervous, got it. I'm feeling a bit of fear. It's okay to feel that way. There's nothing wrong with that. I don't need to eliminate this fear. I don't need to eliminate this anxiety, right? Rejection of the isness creates more of that. It creates more fear. So when we we accept the isness of the emotion, accept the isness of the emotion, it can be as simple as labeling it neuroscience has even shown that when you label an emotion, it reduces activity in the limbic brain and the emotional parts of the brain and increases activity in the prefrontal cortex, you know? And so that, that part of the brain related to focus and awareness. So I'm feeling fear. Got it. Now, once you accept the isness of the emotion without labeling it as good or bad, now you can do something about it. Right? So from that place, you can say, all right, got it. To me, I always say, you know, when you engage it, fear propels you to prepare. Like even writing a book on fear, I was terrified. What if people judge me? What if people think it's stupid? What if people hate it? So I did this exercise. What am I scared of? Why am I scared? What's the worst case scenario? And I would literally write this down. And if this is the worst case scenario, what can I do to prepare for that? So I studied from authors like Jack Canfield, the Chicken Soup for the Soul author. How do I write a better book? And because I was scared of writing a bad book, I wrote a better book that was worthy of being endorsed by the Dalai Lama, right? So when you stop demonizing things as bad or good and accept the isness from that foundation, you can now choose how you want to channel that struggle, how you want to leverage it into something beautiful. And that, that comes then to clarity. What can I do with this? You can't just live in that, right? You, you don't want to just stay in it. You be with it to then use it. So clarity, what's the outcome? What am I seeking? What do I, how can I channel this pain? If you've gone through some dark trauma, it has to be channeled into something purposeful. Like when I came back from the war, you know, as I mentioned, I lost a close friend of mine. And for Mm -hmm. a long time, I spent time drinking, wasting away my life until I started delving into neuroscience, psychology, spirituality, doing that inner work, confronting my demons. And I realized that, look, I can waste my life away or I can choose to, you know, do something worthy with this. And so for a long time, what I did was I had a picture of my friend that I lost in the war up on my wall. And it said, Mm -hmm. this should have been you earn this life. That's an intense thing to look at. But my guilt, my survivors, everybody kept telling me don't feel guilty. And look, it, in war I get it. You can't control what happens. Bullets fly where they fly, bombs explode where they explode. I mean, when I was out there, my vehicle drove over a bomb, an active bomb that didn't explode for God knows what reason. My friend's yeah. drove over a bomb, it exploded and he died. I don't know why that happened. There is no answer to that, right? But I could choose to waste my life away or I could feel that guilt and instead of rejecting it as bad, And cognitively, conceptually, I understand that you can't control what happens in war. But emotionally, the guilt was there. But I realized the guilt was just an expression of love. All it was was an expression of love for my brother, for my brother in arms. So I'm going to use that as something valuable, right? And then when I reframed that guilt, instead of calling it a bad emotion, it was an emotion. It just is. It just is. I'm going to do something with it. And that drove me to now writing my book, *Firvana*, to doing the work that I now do. Accept awareness and acceptance of the isness is the foundation. From there, you then take action. But you have to train yourself to become aware of what is and then accept what is. It just is.
0: How do you train yourself to accept it? Because we've got a, a culture, you know, our, our upbringings have kind of taught us uh, what's right and wrong, what we should yeah. feel, just, just by the very nature of us being in, yeah. enculturated in, in this time and, and space. How do you train for that awareness? Meditation for sure, it builds awareness of that
1: space between stimulus and response, right? So we can be yeah. with an emotion instead of reacting to it, we can then respond to it because there's a space between what shows up and who we choose to be beyond that. So meditation is a great tool as well. Buddha once said, We're all stabbed by the two darts of suffering. The first dart is the one we don't control. So right now, if I'm sitting here talking to you and somebody comes into this room with a gun, I'm going to feel fear. I'm not choosing to. It's a subconscious response to external stimuli. The first dart, right? The second dart is what do I do with that? Now I can pause, acknowledge it, feel it, got it. Now I'm gonna think through the situation. But a lot of us, we're not aware of the second darts. First dart hits and we just react, right? A very concrete example of this, I was in Antarctica two years ago on Expedition and we were skiing on this very hard shift. The wind was hammering us. There was very tough snow conditions. We were at altitude, and I was dying. Every shift before this, I felt a lot easier. And this whole shift, I'm saying to myself, what's wrong with me? Why am I being so weak? What's the, what are the team going to think of me? You know, What if I can't keep up? What if I need to be evacuated? Just going down this rabbit hole in my, in my thoughts. And then at the end of the shift, the team comes up to me and says, that was a hard shift. And suddenly it hit me. That was objectively a harder shift. That was the first start of the suffering was the cold, the windiness, the, sto- the bad snow conditions. The second dart of suffering is where the real suffering happens. That's that inner dialogue, right? Yeah. The inner dialogue that's, that, that we, we go down that rabbit hole of that, that voice. We all can hear that and know we've done that. How do you stop that? You just pause. All right, I'm noticing myself going down this rabbit hole. Got it. I'm going to pause. And it's kind of a first principles thinking met- methodology. What's the isness in this? What do I not control? I don't control that I'm feeling this. We don't control most of the emotions that happen in our brain. We don't control most of the thoughts that happen in our brain, right? So you start by acknowledging that. I didn't control this. I acknowledge the snow is bad. The weather is bad. Whatever the thing is, got it. From here, now I can acknowledge the first dart of suffering and release that second dart. And that's your point of power. We don't control most of our reality, but we do control what we do once it shows up. I think the most profound quote of this is... um, P.D. Uspensky, he wrote this great book called The Psychology of Man's Possible Evolution. He says, man is a machine, but a very peculiar machine. He is a machine that when recognizing he is a machine can cease to be a machine.
0: (laughs) And I love that. (laughs) That's the essence. Yeah. Oh, wow. I love that. I love that. <laughs> well, that's enlightenment. <laughs> it's that working of the mechanistic nature. There's, a, there's actually a quote you just reminded me of from a, a physicist, very similar to that. And by the way, I love Ospinski, love yeah. Jeff. Uh, it was this physicist who said, the human being is a mechanism that within it has a mechanism that prevents the human mechanism from understanding its mechanistic nature. Exactly. Very similar. With that awareness. Oh, so crucial
1: to be with the machine-like nature of our reality so we can then cease to be. That's the step, right? And kind of the second part to that question of what we do then is also start recognizing that how we see reality is a construct. When you do yeah. that, and I'll explain what I mean by that, when you, when you do that, you can now you free yourself from the construct. So in the most simple way, behind me I see a white wall. Now, how do I know that's a white wall? Because when I was young, I was taught that thing I'm seeing is white, and that, that thing is a wall, right? So that color I'm seeing is a white, and that thing is a wall. But that is a construct that's been embedded into me. We are filled with constructs of our reality that have been embedded into us from uh, our parents, our teachers, world, beliefs, all of that. And this is not about right, wrong, good, bad. This is simply to acknowledge that the world around us is a construct. So when I was really starting this journey, I would, as I would driving, I would say, I'm awakened to the truth that all of my reality is an illusion. And I would be driving, and I'd see a red car, and I'd say, that's a red car. I know that's a red car because that's a construct embedded into me that that is a red car. What's beyond yeah. the red car? Now, there's not necessarily an answer to that because it's a very imperceptible moment between in pure experience, between without the constructs that have created us. And you don't even really fully know it until you've tasted it because the inherent nature of me describing it, you can't describe it because words are conceptual, right? Words are the constructs. So it has to be through pure experience that is beyond that. So even if you don't have the answer to it, that's okay. The point is not to know that. It's just to become aware that everything about how I engage with my reality is a construct that's been embedded into me. When you start seeing that, you free your mind. You start freeing your mind from all the constructs, and you start answering. Like, to me, the deepest question, right? Who am I? Mm. My answer to that question is, I am the creator of my own illusion, and when you start seeing that, then you see the world is an illusion. I get to create
0: whatever illusion I want to abide by. Are you familiar with, uh, it's a, a discipline called general semantics from a guy named Alfred Korzybski back in the no, late 60s, like 70s? It. So he, he created a language and it's called E-Prime. And it's a very scientific language, but it also, he, he says this, if everybody adopted this language it could literally solve pretty much all our problems because a lot of our problems come from us taking the illusion that you said as real. <laughs> and it's not a construct. So he, so his language, he doesn't use the word is, right? This is kind of the fundamental principle. So for instance, he wouldn't say this is a phone. He'd say this appears to be a phone. All of our, I think our reactions come from us putting an absolute deterministic Perception on what's really an appearance. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. Yeah. That's it's so kind of cool. like in CBT, right? They call it like masturbation and shooting yourself.
1: Like yeah. You put a
0: muscle reality or this should yeah. be. I, I don't know. I think there's something to the how and language you know, for me, I've studied not just general semantics, but, you know, in anthropology, there's like this thing called the superior wharf hypothesis which says Mm -hmm. that your language determines how you view the world, your reality. There's certain tribes, I think, in Southern Africa called the Himba tribe. They don't have a word for the color blue, so they actually can't see it. And they only see shades of like green. It's it's fascinating how the words really change our brains. So I love what you just said. That foundation of just understanding that everything you see is a perception, right? A construct. Wow. That's it. <laughs> Absolutely.
1: Love it. That's so stage, yeah.
0: Tell me about some more of your, I guess, kind of practices that you've done. Because the first time we met, I remember you telling me you had just spent like a week or 10 days in, in darkness. What was your experience with that? So, yeah,
1: we, I had just spent seven days in complete darkness and isolation. So, you, it's so dark you cannot see your hand in front of you. And they say that when you are in that level of darkness, your brain starts to release DMT. So you experience, which I did experience, these very visceral hallucinogenic light shows. And the lights that you see are as real as the lights I'm seeing right now. In fact, the brightest white light I've ever seen in my entire life was sitting in a dark room. It was so bright. It was blinding. I was closing my eyes like this because it was blinding me. I was touching my eyelids. I couldn't tell if they were open or closed. It was that visceral. What that hit me in a very, very deep visceral way as opposed to a conceptual way was how these two seemingly contradictory forces of darkness and light can coexist as one. And that to me isn't an experience of enlightenment, right? The, the, the opposing forces can coexist. It's non-dualism, right? It's, it's all of these opposing forces, darkness, light, masculine, feminine, you know, ego, humility, all of these things that they're not, one is not bad or good, fear, nirvana, pain, pleasure. It's, they all can coexist, and so that was a really powerful experience for me. I actually, so even when I went in, I had, I had gone through this very challenging divorce. My ex-wife, without going too deep into it, she got caught up in a cult and our marriage ended and I broke my sobriety and I broke it hard. <laughs> when I do anything, I do it pretty hard. So <laughs> I broke it really hard and I wanted to go deeper within to find some answers, you know, and that's what led me to the seven day darkness retreat. And then just last year I did, I went back in for 10 days. And this time oh. I went in as training for the solitude of Antarctica, And I was actually even journaling in the dark. You know, I had a ruler and I was writing. It was profound. Like when I came out and I read my own journal and not in some sort of egotistical way as look at what I wrote, but I was so moved. It was as if there was something speaking through me, you know, as if you're simply, because in silence, you really start to hear. You know, you really start to hear in that. And that was the value because even in the darkness, you know, you're shutting off one of the primary ways in which we engage with the world, our visual sense. So even in the most simple way, I look at that white wall and I say, but my consciousness has somewhere external to latch onto, that white wall. In darkness, there's nowhere external to go. So the value of this journey is you're taking the most beautiful hero's journey there is, the journey within. And when you do that, you're going to open doors within yourself that have never been opened, right? And it's not just going to be the sunshine and the rainbows that are coming out of those doors. It's going to be the darkness. It's going to be the demons. But the value in doing that is you bring all that stuff to the surface. You know, Carl Jung once said until you make the unconscious conscious, it will direct your life and you will call it fate. The journey within is to bring that unconscious, the silence, that's what it does. You know, you start to hear, you start to open the doors into the soul that haven't been opened before. And now once they're at the surface, you can start choosing what you do with them instead of being an imp- a prisoner to them. And that's really what it was for me. The first time was more healing the past. The second time was more creating the person I need to be to ski across Antarctica. I actually went deep into studying method acting and in the darkness, especially on the 10-day retreat, I was creating the character I need to be to spend 110 days skiing across
0: Antarctica. Wow. <laughs> Incredible. You blow my mind. I want to get into Antarctica, but this darkness thing is so yeah. fascinating to me. Do you know the origin of this, this practice? Like, how, where does it come from? Is it some ancient technique uh, shamans use? Or how does it... Who it is, you know.
1: Yeah, from my yeah. understanding, the monks have been doing this forever. You know, they would go into caves. There's one very unknown uh, tribe, or not like a group of monks that would sit in darkness for months on end, months on end, and just be with, you know, be with themselves. Hmm. I can't remember the name of this. I remember reading it because. They also became these incredibly fast runners. Gotta, I'll find this later, but just the practice of darkness has been around in spiritual traditions for a long time. I've read about Hindu sadhus doing it, monks. Too. It's just, again, it's, the, it's, the, it's one of the most profound spiritual experiences to go deeper within yourself in, in silence, in pure silence. Even when you're learning anything from any, any teacher, it's not about right, this is not about right, wrong, good, bad, but any teacher is going to bring their own constructs of reality in their teaching me you anybody right and it could be great it could be it's not about the bad right or wrong about it but in darkness there are no constructs that are coming into it it's just your own stuff so it's very freeing in that way to see what is revealed so you can start finding that space between you know who you think you are the constructs of yourself and then who you seek to be in the higher version of yourself
0: it reminds me of like there's this uh, harvard professor who was with a Richard Alpert Ram Dass named Tim Leary and his Tim Leary's work was all about re-imprinting and it seems like this darkness experience is a, is a way that you could actually re-imprint your brain and like you said kind of create new a new identity or new habits or new vision wow that's that's incredible that's something i'm actually going to look into that's so interesting i you think you'd love it brother <laughs> from everything i know if you and in well, the of you i think you'd get a lot from it yeah yeah you did
1: you did 7 days Seven days the first time, 10 days the second time. Day, okay, no, how no, did no, you it.
0: eat? What did you, how did you eat?
1: I chose to do a juice fast both times because I wanted to add hunger into the okay. experience. Uh, so the second time on the 10 days, of course I did, right? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, the second time I did eight days of a juice fast in the last two days, no calories at all. So just pure water. And then twice a day, like they would bring in this kind of this double door system. They would bring a juice, put it in there, close the outer door. And then bring it in so you don't get any exposure to light. And that's what creates those light shows. And in the lights, you will start having forms take shape. And whatever your own belief system, you can call it God, the universe, consciousness speaking to you. But I mean, I had what I perceived to be, as crazy as it may sound, a conversation with God in the second time in darkness that left me bawling in tears. Bawling in tears. Wow. Wow. It was a very, very intense experience.
0: So you mentioned it a few times. Let's get into Antarctica. Antarctica is like that mysterious place that we have this wonder, I think, for, but nobody knows what the heck is going on there. But you've traveled there. You've trekked there. Tell me about your experience, your time, and also you're planning to go in like a a week or two weeks or
1: something? It was supposed to be this year, but now it's uh, next year. So in about 10 months, 11 months, yeah. Yeah, when I was there last time, my team and I, a team of three others, four of us total, We became one of only 26 people to ski up this very remote glacier up there called Axel Heiberg. The goal was to ski to the South Pole, but after 17 days out there, I ended up getting pretty severe frostbite on two Mm. fingers, and I had to be evacuated. The fingers were very black, very dark, had to be evacuated, and that journey ended. It was a long recovery. This finger, the the tip was black, and it had to be surgically removed. The left middle finger, which was a kind of crazy story about this one, so this one recovered fully. It was a full finger once again, but once you get frostbite, you're always more prone to frostbite. So I uh-huh. was in the Arctic earlier this year on a series of training expeditions. It got to minus 37 degrees, extremely cold, and this one finger, the tip of it, would get cold faster than the rest of my fingers. So I made a decision that I, I know was the right one, but it was a bold one, to preemptively remove the tip of this finger because of what I'm currently about to do. So I'm, I'm now training to do 110-day solo 1,700-mile coast-to-coast crossing of Antarctica, where I'll be dragging a 400-pound sled completely alone. I will geographically be the most isolated life form in the entire world for portions of the journey, and to make this full, never-before-accomplished solo crossing of the continent. And for 110 days out there, there's obviously a few risks, one of which is frostbite. And I didn't want the liability of not just the physical risk of getting frostbite, which would mean an end to my expedition. But it's a mental drain on the energy if you're always worrying about it, right? So earlier this year, I was in India and had this finger preemptively removed. It was quite an interesting story because my doc- the doctors refused to cut it off. They were like, this is a good finger. We can't do this, you know? And I was explaining my case, telling them that I'm not this finger. This finger means nothing to me than compared to the, the depths of the, the treasures of the human soul that I will unearth, you know, on this journey. It's way more valuable than just my finger. And the thing that actually convinced them to eventually to do it was my mom's support. My mom told the doctor i need you to do this for my son you know what kind of mom would say that until this unless there was a really good reason so <laughs> it was wild but that's now where i'm headed i was there two years ago and now headed back there next year
0: are you going to be documenting this are you bringing cameras how's
1: because this is this is a crazy journey we are filming a document around it they've filmed uh, me actually they filmed me in mexico coming out of the darkness Filmed me in Iceland in the Arctic earlier this year, training in Arizona on ice in Antarctica. I'll be completely alone, so it'll just be video journals kind of documenting my descent into madness after 110 days alone. I'm actually one of the things I'm doing. You ever seen the movie Cast Away? Yeah. Where Tom Hanks talks to a Wilson. I have my own little Wilson. It's a little laughing Buddha. It's a stuffed pillow laughing Buddha that I've named Bodhi, which I'm sure you're familiar. Buddhism is a Bodhisattva. It's a being who's attained enlightenment, but chooses to sacrifice nirvana to help others who are suffering. Concept I deeply resonate with, so I name my little buddy Bodie, and we chat when I'm alone out there.
0: <laughs> oh my
1: gosh,
0: this is incredible!
1: It's crazy how quickly you lose the sense that you're talking to a stuffed pillow, and how yeah. fast it becomes as real as you and me having this conversation. You know?
0: Gosh, I'm I'm speechless. This is incredible. Okay, so it's in ten months from now. You're yeah. doing a documentary on it. Say something does go wrong, are you able to? Have, you know, walkies or some sat phone. there? I will have a sat phone. I
1: will have, there'll actually be a live tracker. Everybody, including people back home, can see me moving across. It, uh, and so if like, even when I was there two years ago, you know, I got evacuated. It's, polar travel is not as dangerous as let's say mountain climbing or free soloing as people often compare it to. It's not as dangerous, but it's far more suffering because you're skiing in empty white nothingness. I mean, imagine staring into a white wall and just looking at that, skiing at that for 12 hours a day. You know, when you're in this, the 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 challenge, one the biggest challenge I find is, other than the physical, is the mental. Because your mind is going to wander. You know, when I'm climbing mountains, like I was on Denali last year at 16,000 feet, there's a thin ridgeline, thousand foot drop on each side. So the environment brings you into flow. It makes it easier to facilitate flow because you can't think about other stuff. You're thinking about that next step because there's consequences. In Antarctica, you're just walking in flat terrain with Mm -hmm. nothing in front of you, no stimuli to engage you. And so Mm -hmm. it becomes this mental battle of can you bring yourself back into the present? And your mind's going to start thinking like I've had moments on these expeditions where 10 minutes felt like a lifetime, you know, Mm -hmm. Uh, and other moments where you're just completely lost in the isness of this experience. And just one with all that is, and it's pure bliss, right? And that ability to navigate the mental challenges is the draw, the mental and physical suffering. But you know, when you're in the absolute depths of solitude of suffering away from decadence away from distractions you start to hear the things you don't Mm -hmm. otherwise hear you get to open doors into the human soul that aren't otherwise opened and you know the bigger the dragon the bigger the treasure right and so out there you're battling some monster dragons to unearth the, the deepest treasures and it's a privilege to do that and to then bring the treasures back and share it with others navigating their own everybody's got their own version of an antarctica to cross you know whether it be a single mom trying to work three jobs or you know uh, somebody trying to write a book or build a business whatever we all got our struggles but because I get to go play so so far out on the edge so far out there I get to open other doors that other uh, that aren't otherwise opened and mm-hmm. so to me it's a responsibility then to bring that back and share it and so it's a privilege that I get to go and I'm I can't wait to see what will be revealed to me out there you know.
0: Me even. I can't wait to get the report. This is <laughs> <Thanks>, incredible. Thanks, <laughs> brother. It's gonna be a hell of a, a hell of a thing. Yeah. Wow. Well, I'm excited for you. Akshay, you are wow, such an inspiration. I want to ask you a few more questions. So these are Me. questions that I kind of ask every guest, and I call it the five best. So it's kind of like a rapid fire. But you know, if you want to take your time, no, no problem. So it's five questions, and the first one is, what is the best quote? you ever heard i think it would be from carl
1: Jung. if anyone wants to know anything about the human psyche it would be best to abandon scholars gown and wander with human heart throughout the world there he would reap richer stores of knowledge than textbooks a foot thick could give him and he would know how to doctor the sick with their true knowledge of the human soul (laughs) excellent what's the best advice you ever received Be with what is, but do not become what is. And I I wouldn't—that was received to me. I call it by God on a journey, one of my many journeys on the edge. You know that—that comes back to that acceptance of isness. You know, I think the the primary cause of all our suffering is that second dart suffering. If we reject the perfection of each moment, we create more suffering. Like just a concrete example, real quick about this: I was in the Arctic earlier this year, skiing in very challenging snow, soft snow. There was—I've been bathammered by storms. And as I was skiing in the soft snow, I kept saying, thank you, God, for these perfect conditions. The snow was very soft, and it was much harder to ski because it was soft. It could, it was easy. It would have been easier if it was hard. But everything is perfect in its isness because it cannot be anything other than what it already is. You know. So when you accept the perfection of the isness of each moment, you can now choose who you want to be in that moment instead of rejecting it. And it's that rejection of the perfection of isness that creates most of our suffering.
0: I think all of it. <laughs> All of our suffering, right? It's the rejection of well Byron. I don't know if you're familiar with Byron Katie's work, right? She's yeah. like, if you when you when you argue with what is, you lose. <laughs> I love it. I absolutely love that. Yeah. Everything's yeah. perfect in yeah. business. Best investment you ever made could be, you know, when people hear that, I think financial, but it could be in your own mindset. What's the best investment you ever
1: made? I think the best investment we can make is in ourselves, in our growth and i would say it is the the voyages on the edge you know whether it be running ultras whether it be going to post conflict zones to to see coming back to that carl jung quote to explore the depths of the human soul and to do that it means going into places you've never been within and without right it goes to cuz only then can you find something you've never found so that investment to go into these depths, I've worked with survivors of sex trafficking, former child soldiers, you know, people in poverty, volunteered in leper colonies, have gone to the depths of solitude within. And that investment on the edges of the human condition has unearthed the greatest treasures I could possibly find for myself and then my ability to make a difference for others as well. So I would say, invest in yourself by playing on the edge. And on that edge doesn't just mean on the edge of suffering. It means like real quick, there's a series of dualities that encompass the human experience, pain and pleasure, masculine, feminine, ego, humility, contentment, discontentment, you know, the darkness and the light. And we often demonize one side as bad, right? Pain is bad. The fear is bad. The darkness is bad. But play on all edges and you will unearth the treasures of the human soul. You'll feel more awe in the experience of life. So as much as I play on the edge of suffering, I also play on the edge of fun. You know, as much as I play on the edge of the darkness, I also play on the edge of light. So playing on those edges and investing in that and going on an edge that creates friction for you, go somewhere where you've never been and you'll unearth something you've never known.
0: Best time in your life. Now, brother.
1: Mm, every awesome, moment. Brother. Every-
0: <laughs> Best adventure you've ever gone over.
1: I'm very blessed to have gone on a good bit. <laughs> uh, but I think this current adventure I'm about to embark upon. I'm about to, as, I, you know, as we spoke about, I'm about to get married. I'm very blessed to found someone amazing who (laughs) puts up with my madness Mm. and then now where we are going you know i've been on many adventures in the past and they're amazing but i think the best adventure is the one that's coming getting married in two days and where we will go together and where i'll be able to go in antarctica and then where we'll be able to do to go in terms of bringing the wisdom of that edge to others in everything that's coming in the next year of my life is going to be it's the most intense year of my life ahead in the most pro like challenging but also beautiful ways and so that, that adventure is, this is the best adventure I'm about to embark upon, brother.
0: If I gave you a magic wand, right, magic wand, and I said, you could wave this magic wand at planet Earth and make a wish, and tomorrow when you woke up, that magic wand wish will be granted, what would your magic wand wish be? I would say my magic wand wish for all of
1: us would be to master that space between the first and the second dart, to master that space between stimulus and response. Because the goal, I don't think, is to eliminate suffering. Suffering has value. I mean, it's the greatest problem in the human condition is our suffering, right? How do we – because that's the greatest problem. The greatest thing we seek is bliss, enlightenment, happiness, joy, fulfillment, whatever you want. But if you master that – if everybody mastered that space, we no longer truly – I mean, yes, we'll suffer, but we'll no longer have that second dart suffering, that unnecessary suffering and we'll know how to find bliss even in our suffering. So I would want for everybody, and I think that's the core teaching, is to master that space. Viktor Frankl put it more profoundly beautifully than I could. He said, between stimulus and response, there's a space. In that space lies our power to choose our response, and in our response lies our growth and our freedom. And so I would want for everybody to know and to viscerally be able to tap into the difference between the first dart and the second art so you can free yourself of unnecessary suffering and use whatever pain life throws your way because it will and use it to create something beautiful from it. Beautiful. Beautiful. Thank you, brother.
0: My mind's blown. How can people stay in tune with you and touch with you? Uh, I know you've got a book. So just, just let us know where we can find more information about what
1: you're doing. The book Firvana is on Amazon Kindle paperback. As I said, we were donating all the profits to charity. Currently, we're putting all the profits to fund the crossing, and then after the crossing, we'll go back to sending to charity. You can find me on Instagram at Firvana, and even right now, we're doing a crowdfunding campaign for the crossing because it costs seven hundred fifty thousand dollars to pull it off. We've raised two hundred and three thousand so far; more coming early next year. But have a crowdfunding campaign at GreatSoulCrossing.com. That's Great S O U L Crossing. And on the crowdfunding campaign, we've also given away different trainings, like my method acting training and just like all the mindset tools and trainings that have developed over decades of this life experience. uh, Just as a thank you for any contributions, every little bit adds up. So any support there would mean the world and make a difference in helping us to pull this off and elevate human consciousness on the other side of it.
0: Amazing. Amazing. Say that. Say that website
1: one more time. Greatsoulcrossing.com okay i'm
0: I'm definitely gonna check that one out (laughs) oh thank you brother Yeah, thank, thank you so much for joining me man this was incredible thank you for thank you for coming on sauna sessions i had a blast
1: thank you so much for having me brother truly an honor
0: and you guys make sure you comment make sure you subscribe make sure you share the podcast if you learned something if you were inspired and i will see you next week on sauna sessions peace